It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. No one is above the law, says former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal. He believes the Senate should vote to remove President Trump from office, which would be a first in American history. In his book, Impeach, Katyal says the nation's democracy is at risk if Trump isn't held accountable. This involves, you know, really that sacred official, our chief officer of the United States, and he's doing something that is at the core of what he's not supposed to do, cheat in his re-election. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held by Aspen Community Programs. In his farewell address, President George Washington said, quote, Foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. This fear of foreign actors led the founders to grant Congress the power to impeach a president. That power was employed in December when the U.S. House impeached President Trump, charging him with abusing the power of his office for personal political gain and for obstructing Congress. Trump is the third president in U.S. history to be impeached. Neil Katyal, who's argued nearly four dozen cases before the Supreme Court, speaks with Dahlia Lithwick. She's a senior editor at Slate who covers the Supreme Court. In their discussion, which was held on January 3rd, they go over the history of impeachment and what's ahead for Trump and the Republican Party. Here's Lithwick. Thank you uh, for for bringing us both here. It's a huge uh, historic honor to be talking to Neil about his book. I also just want to flag, because if there was no podcast, it didn't happen, uh, that uh, this will be carried, this conversation will be carried both on uh, the Aspen Institute's amazing podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go, and on my podcast uh, on the Slate Plus feed, so uh, everyone behave themselves because this is going to have a long tail. Um, But mostly, I just want to say it's just a huge honor. I've known Neil for a very, very long time, um, and I think he has done in one administration after another just yeoman's work uh, fighting for the rule of law, and so it's just a huge Huge pleasure to be here, and I told him in the green room, but I'll tell all of you, um, this I have read, because it's my job, all six impeachment books that have come out in the past year, and this is bar none. If you only read one, uh, this is bar none, the clearest, and uh, I actually think the most accessible, uh, so I really do commend it to you, and no, I get no royalties for saying that. Um, I want to... Um, Start by just to set the table, making it completely clear uh, where uh, you come from on this, Neil, because I think that it's awfully easy, particularly in uh, very, very polarized and polemical days to say, oh, come on, he was acting attorney general for Obama. Of course, uh, he's going to be in the tank for impeachment. And you describe yourself in the book, I I love this expression, as an extreme centrist. Uh, So I wonder if you could just by way of setting the table, um, give us a sense of how you come to this and how uh, as a pretty small C conservative institutional actor, uh, you are willing to make the case against Donald Trump. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, Dahlia asked, uh, you know, where am I coming from in writing the book? And yeah, I do describe myself as an extremist centrist. And by that, I mean that I feel like we've lost in this country that middle ground um, as the the hard left and the hard right, largely the hard right, but both sides really dominate a lot of the discussion. And I think you can, you know, still have strong views, um, but they can be, you know, not necessarily just monolithic with your party. And so, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, Justice Gorsuch, I guess 10 days into the administration, President Trump nominated him. And, um, you know, I, I was... I decided that I would take a stand on it and say that I thought that his that the nomination was actually a good one. I mean, I thought the president was going to nominate Judge Judy. So, like, you know, like, I mean, you know, this was like way surpassing expectations. But, 
But, you know, I was privileged to serve as Elena Kagan's deputy when she was nominated to the Supreme Court. And I remember I was so mad at the Republicans who voted against her because I said to myself, like, how could it be that someone this qualified, first dean of Harvard Law School, brilliant solicitor general, just a phenomenal all-round intellect and fair and balanced, you know, how could they oppose her? How could you vote against her? And I remember thinking to myself at that time, you know, that if there were another nominee from the other party because of a different presidential administration, that, you know, it would be my duty to say, hey, you know, the same yardstick should apply. And if you were mad at them for voting against, uh, you know, Kagan, you should be mad at the Democrats who'd vote against a, a nominee on the other side. And so that's the way I approach rule of law issues. It's not the way I approach all political issues, but when we're talking about rule of law, I think that central idea, you know, it's characterized by the statue of Lady Justice. She's blind and uh, blindfolded, excuse me. And the idea is that, you know, the same rules apply. It doesn't matter who, you know, which side of the courtroom someone's on. You know, it's the thing we say to our first year law students on day one. Everyone's gonna come in with their biases and flip the parties, argue the other side. If you're, you know, if you're into corporations, you know, pretend you're representing a plaintiff or vice versa. And that's how I think we should approach the impeachment allegations here. So if you're a Republican, I think you should say to yourself, if Barack Obama did these things, how would I feel? Um, and I don't see, frankly, the Republicans in the Senate, in the House, asking that question right now. Neil, I, I, I think that the overarching question that I want you to answer, and you, you sort of tee it up in the introduction to the book, but I think it's really essential when we're talking about impeachment, uh, given that everyone in this country has polarization fatigue, and you have just described an absolute desperate need to find a middle way back. It's ironic in the extreme that what you're advocating for is sort of the thermonuclear impeachment, right? The thing that has happened twice, could have happened three times, never comes to fruition in the Senate. Uh, and I think that the sort of article of faith around this for the exhausted is come on, Neil, can't we just wait till the 2020 election? This is A, not going to work, and B, only going to further radicalize and politicize a country that is fractured already. Why don't we just wait till 2020 and work this out at the ballot box as uh, the framers intended? Okay, great. So, so you're absolutely right. President Trump is the third president in our history to be impeached. So he's finally good at something. Um, he's gotten more votes for impeachment than any other president in our history. So he's, you know, he, he's, you know, part of an elite club. Um, and now, why am I advocating for this um, when the election is so close? I guess two things. One, just simple logic and another historical. The simple logical one is this. The president, the allegation against the president is really simple, that he cheated in the 2020 election. He tried to get help from a foreign government and he got caught. So to say, wait for that 2020 election to decide things is kind of like if Dolly and I are playing a game of Monopoly and she accuses me of cheating and I say, well, let's just figure out whether I cheated by playing another game of Monopoly. I mean, that do it doesn't make any sense given the central allegation here. Um, the, the more historical answer is that, you know, this actually came up in the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. So during that long, hot summer, they deferred a lot of the questions about impeachment to the end. They wanted to know first kind of what the contours of the presidency were going to look like. And actually, they settled on a really strong presidency. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll even take a question about, you know, the, the full extent of the president's powers with relation to what happened yesterday in the strike in Iraq. But, um, but uh, you know, the founders did, you know, as Hamilton said in, federal, in the Federalist Papers, they wanted an executive with secrecy and dispatch, a strong president who could act quickly. But then they said, at, toward the end of the Philadelphia Convention, boy, if the president is that strong, we need to have some check on a president that acts outside of the scope of his powers and betrays the American trust. 
And, uh, you know, some founders, like Elbridge Gary, said, we don't need to do that because they said exactly what you just heard Dahlia say. The, Gary said, well, there'll be, a there'll be re elections. At that point, there wasn't the constitutional amendment that said there'd be two term presidential elections. So it was contemplated presidents could run and run again and the like. And what Gary said is because they're always going to be running for re election, they'll be disciplined themselves and the election will discipline it. And others, like Hamilton and Madison, said, uh uh. What if you have a president who fundamentally betrays the American trust? Are we supposed to wait and just let that happen? What if, uh, Madison said, one of those presidents has help from a foreign government? Um, and so then, actually even Elbridge Gary changes his mind and says, absolutely, that's what we need impeachment for. It is literally the textbook definition of what impeachment is. A president who goes and seeks help from a foreign government to help him in his election. That is front and foremost what the founders had in mind when they thought about impeachment. And, you know, and just to return to one other thing Dahlia said, which is this is a thermonuclear option. It is, and I do think it's justified here, but it's, I think, important to note that even before this grave horrible offense that I see the president committing. There were other ones that he committed, you know, things that are documented in the Mueller report and other places. And there, his Justice Department said, well, you can't do something less than thermonuclear. They said, you can't indict a sitting president. Indeed, they're walking into court now and saying, you can't even get documents or witnesses to investigate a president. So the options short of thermonuclear have been removed by the president himself, and that's what we're left with here, which is, I, I don't take any pleasure in this, nobody should. The idea that we're going to you know, have a vote as to whether the president of the United States should be removed, that's a horribly wrenching thing. Our founders thought it was, the two times it's happened before it was, the time it almost happened with Nixon it was, but um, you know, at some point, when the president does something this wrong, this is what it's for. It's in the Constitution for a reason. It shouldn't be read out of the Constitution, which is what the president is trying to do. Um, I wonder if you've kind of flicked at this now, but I wonder if you, we can pull on it a little bit, Neil. Um, the framers were uniquely suspicious of a couple of things that are really at play in the in the sort of Ukraine scandal. One of them you just noted, but I'd like you to unpack, which is foreign influence on domestic affairs. I think they were uniquely worried about bribery. And in fact, you know, where, where, whereas high crimes and misdemeanors has become a, a debatable catch-all about what it is that the framers intended, they were very worried about bribery. Uh, so I wonder if, and then undergirding all of that, and you write about this a lot, and it's a complicated notion, they were worried about abuses of power and abuses of influence. So I wonder if you can just sort of take us back and help us understand what it is about foreign influence, bribery, and abuse of power that is different from, you know, when we sit around and we try to say, like, what does high crimes and misdemeanors mean? Did, it, did he mug someone? You know, did he blackmail someone? It means something very different, high crimes and misdemeanors, to the framers. Can you talk us through that? Excellent. Okay, so um, the, the epigraph to the book, there are three quotes that start the book, and they are exactly the three things that Dahlia um, has uh, isolated. The first is foreign influence. Our founders were so worried about foreign governments secretly influencing the United States. So much so, I think you're, you were born in Canada, right? I was. Yeah, so, so Dahlia can't be president, um, uh, because or in of, GQ, neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on GQ, um, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, but uh, they were so worried that someone born somewhere else might be come to be a spy or something like that. So much so, this is what George Washington said in his farewell address. He said, "Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake." since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. And this was just a central theme of the founding. And, you know, I really thought this was a common bipartisan understanding 
that when you are running for a presidential election, if your opponent calls and says, hey, I got some dirt on your opponent, the thing you do is you say, hey, can, can I put you on hold for a second? I got just for one second. And then you pick up, put it on hold and call the FBI and say, hey, here's what's happening. Well, that's what happened to Trump in 2016. The Russians came and said, oh, some Russian agents said that, uh, that there was um, evidence that they had on Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump Jr. said, if, you if, if it is what you say it is, I love it, particularly later in the summer. Um, they took the meeting at the Trump Tower and the like, and the president has said, there's nothing wrong with that. Indeed, right before the Ukraine allegations, just the month before in May, before the Ukraine conduct in May, there was an interview, May of 2019, there's an interview with George Stephanopoulos, and Stephanopoulos asks Trump in the Oval Office, he says, you know, if a foreign government has information on one of your rivals, what would you do? And Trump says, I'd take it, I'd listen to it, no problem. And that's, you know, what he did. And I would have thought that's a, just the most simple thing that the left and right should be able to agree on is no way. You never want to have that kind of influence uh, in our system. Um, so that's um, point one. And then you ask about high crimes and misdemeanors. So the phrase in the Constitution for impeachable conduct is treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And so the House is to impeach by a majority vote which doesn't remove him from office. It's just like the formal accusation that the president has committed a high crime and misdemeanor. And then the Senate is supposed to try him, supposed to, in quotes. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, try, in quotes, I guess. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then by two-thirds vote can decide to remove him and also can take a second vote as to whether to bar him from future office holding, a lifetime ban on future office holding. Um, so the, there's a, been a long debate, what does this high crimes and misdemeanors thing mean? Well, it doesn't actually mean a crime. So you can commit lots of crimes as president and not be impeached. The best example, which I think everyone in this audience is familiar with, if for no other reason than they've listened to or seen Hamilton, is Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr is the vice president of the United States, and he shoots and kills Alexander Hamilton while he's the vice president. There's no call for his impeachment. That's an ordinary crime. The phrase is, the phrase is high crimes and misdemeanors. And high means to signal an offense against the state. So if, if this were done, if the murder were done in some way for some political end or something, maybe. But really what it's designed to signal, that phrase, is something that you know I think was captured well by a congressman in 2008. He said, this business of high crimes and misdemeanors goes to the question whether or not the person serving as president put their own interests, their personal interests, ahead of public service. Their own interests ahead of public service. That congressman was Mike Pence, uh, now the vice president. And um, I do think, you know, uh, you know, rarely does he get something right, but he nailed it on that. That's what it is. And so the... The House and Senate are to ask that simple question. When the president did this Ukraine business, was he putting his personal interests over those of the American people? And secondly, because there's this other whole part of impeachment. So Article 1 of impeachment is the Ukraine stuff. But Article 2 of impeachment is the obstruction of Congress. Because Congress is to have a vibrant oversight role in impeachment. Obviously, that's the whole founding compromise in Philadelphia in 1787. Strong president, but then strong check on the president through impeachment. And so presidents throughout our history, like Polk in 1846, said once there's an impeachment inquiry, Congress gets everything. It can be national security information, whatever it is, they get it. And presidents in impeachment inquiries have turned over documents and witnesses and the like until this president. He's done something no president in our history has done. Not even Nixon. Nixon, for two weeks during the impeachment inquiry, said, I'm going to not give three cabinet witnesses to Congress. I'm going to claim executive privilege. But even he backed down. 
and gave those witnesses, gave those documents over. But this president has said not a single document, not a single witness can be turned over. And I know all of you have seen some of the hearings and wondering, well, if there's a gag order on all those people, how are Trump administration people like Gordon Sondland, Ambassador Sondland, or Fiona Hill, how are they testifying? Because they've actually gone and bravely said, I'm defying the president and I'm defying the gag order, and they're testifying in spite of it. And that's in contrast to other people in the administration, like John Bolton, who probably didn't sleep last night out of giddiness. Um, uh, and, uh, um, you know, he finally found a drug deal that he could get behind. Um, uh, 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 you know, and uh, Charles Kupperman and others who have said, oh, we're scared to testify. Maybe someone will come after me if I testify. And they've tried to go to court uh, to, to try and get an answer on that, even though there's already a court decision in another case, in the Don McGahn case, saying, of course you've got to testify. What do you think? It's your American obligation. I've been trying to think about how one of the things that, that Neil does in the book that's immensely helpful is provide a lot of primary sources so that you can figure out what the whistleblower complaint looked like yourself. You can figure out what uh, uh, White House counsel's response has been. Um, and, and more of it has been uploaded. So I think, you know, one of the ways that this book is immensely useful is it just points you to primary sources so you can sort out how you feel about this. All that said, Neil, I wonder if you could, having sort of laid out uh, the theory of why this comes under your bucket, under into your bucket, under your umbrella of... Uh, impeachable offenses, if you could sort of lay out as best you can why the evidence in your view supports, and I, with the huge caveat that this has gotten so sort of in the weeds with quid pro quos, I couldn't say quid pro quo for the first month on my podcast, I had to say it six times for every take, I can finally say quid pro quo, doesn't matter immaterial, but it's gotten very mired in a lot of side questions about what criminal law does and does not implicate, but can you just walk us through your kind of MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, here's my theory of why the evidence as presented here fits your theory of the case? Yeah, so, so the question for whether a high crime misdemeanor has been established is, was the president putting his personal interests over those of the American people? That's the Pence standard, um, but it's the, it's the standard constitutional historians have used for a long time. And so you look at what the president did, and he says, read the transcript. And, you know, the president isn't even very good at a cover-up. So you can read the transcript, and it's devastating for the president. That took place on July 25th, the day after Mueller testified, um, and I think the president was feeling quite emboldened on the 25th. And you have the president of Ukraine saying, I really need this military assistance. And then you have the president saying, well, wait, I need a favor from you, though, though and then goes to explain how he wants this investigation material over Biden and Burisma and the like, although Burisma's actually edited out of the transcript that we're able to see. But we know from House testimony that that's what was said. But that word, though, is really important. It you know, really does demonstrate the quid pro quo of this. Now, I don't think you need a quid pro quo. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it is exactly there. The president of Ukraine is saying, look, we need this aid. The Russians are attacking us. And the president says, I need a favor from you, though. And, you know, this is so significant that even the House uh, minority leaders, uh, Kevin McCarthy, went in on the Sunday shows and he's like, oh, there's nothing in the transcript. It's perfect and beautiful. And... Uh, the news anchor, I think it was Chris Wallace, said, well, no, it says, I need a favor from you, though. And McCarthy says, that's not in there. Those not in there. If it were in there, it'd be different. Well, it is in there. And, uh, you know, this is like Lindsey Graham before the transcript was released saying, well, you know, it'd be really different if there was a quid pro quo, then we'd really have to look into it. The transcript's released. And then after the transcripts released, released, Mick Mulvaney, who's the president's acting chief of staff, says, yes, there's a quid pro quo, get over it. Um, but of course, Lindsey Graham sits on his hands and does nothing, even after the chief of staff to the president, that like literally his number one person, 
says there was a quid pro quo. Um, so those that transcript demonstrates that there was a quid pro quo. Now the question is, well, the president is saying he was against corruption. Um, and that's what it was. So it wasn't in his personal interest. It was in the interest of you and me. So there's a couple of problems with this claim. Number one, the president literally cannot identify a single other country in which he's cared about corruption. Okay, this is the only time we're being asked to believe this is the only time that he's ever cared about corruption. But yes, he really cares about corruption. So that's number one. Number two, he has a pesky problem that his administration, the month before he ordered the aid suspended, had studied the Ukrainian government and concluded that there was no corruption and that the aid could flow. That's his administration. So. You know, between those two things, I think it's a, it's a really tough thing. But then to add to that, the icing on the cake. I've served in two different justice departments. If we thought that there was some allegation of corruption in another, you know, that, that, uh, that was taking place in some foreign country, the last person we would deputize to go and solve and look into that is Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> And I, I do think that he's himself got some issues, but even apart from that, the idea that in a legitimate corruption investigation, you would go and task your private lawyer to do that, uh, the president's private lawyer, it makes no sense whatsoever. Of course not. You need someone who's Senate confirmed, uh, you know, who's, who's you know, responsible, who understands corruption investigations in the current milieu. I know, understand that Rudy Giuliani was a high-ranking Justice Department official in the 1980s before the internet, but, uh, but you know, that does not, I think, make him an expert into corruption today, and certainly not one that has been uh, approved by the Senate of the United States. So it's just, this is a post hoc rationalization and that's why this president is so afraid to have any witnesses and documents. And you have to ask yourself, if you know, just think about it yourself. You're, pretend you're the president. Pretend you've been impeached by the House. And you think it's totally illegitimate. You think it's totally wrong. Wouldn't you go and, and order the documents and evidence and witnesses released in the Senate, which is controlled by your own party and which has a two-thirds vote to remove you? Of course you would. You'd testify yourself. The only reason he's not, there's only one explanation that makes any sense, which is he knows he's guilty and he knows he's going to be caught if there is documents and evidence. And, you know, yesterday is a perfect illustration of this. They, um, you know, for, for months, they, their documents around uh, the Ukraine um, holding up of aid by the Office of Management and Budget and others have been sought by the House, have been sought by private parties. They finally, like a week ago, in a private Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, got some redacted documents out, which are really bad. I mean, they show that the White House and the Office of Management and Budget thought from the beginning that there were serious legal problems with this, and they were asking, what the heck is going on? How does this make any sense? And they were trying to compartment the information so it was only limited to a few. Well, yesterday, some enterprising journalist at Just Security was able to unredact somehow these documents and read them. And they show even more devastating stuff about just how much they knew that what they were doing was illegal. So that's why they're afraid of the documents coming out. Um, and look, I, I understand, you know, you might be a supporter of President Trump on policies and this and that, but I'll just submit to you, Nothing is worth this. No tax break, no judges, nothing. The reason why... I mean, the reason why my parents came to this country and why I know so many of yours did or grand generations back is because of its commitment to the rule of law, because of the idea that in this country, justice is blind, and that there are standards and rules, and it doesn't matter how much we benefit personally from the person in office, when he breaks our, his fundamental oath to the people, there is a remedy against that, and that's impeachment.
Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If the 2016 U.S. election felt volatile and vitriolic, the forecast for a cordial 2020 isn't looking much better. The nomination process is dividing Democrats, Republicans are closing ranks around an embattled President Trump, and distrust of the news media is at an all-time high. How can we learn to trust journalists again? What are the issues Americans really care about? Hear from Aspen Ideas Festival speakers Brett Stevens, Heidi Heitkamp, David French, Rihanna Gunwright, and many others. Look for the collection, 20 Talks to Understand the 2020 Political Landscape, on our website, aspenideas.org. That's aspenideas.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, we haven't talked as much about the obstruction piece, but I do think so much of what you're saying right now about keeping material witnesses and documents away from congressional investigators, seemingly away uh, from the Senate trial, really does uh, map perfectly onto the obstruction claims that were made uh, around uh, Nixon and the Watergate uh, uh, process. And the other thing that's just worth flagging, uh, you know, in, in Neil's sort of laundry list of ways we can probably know that it wasn't the corruption, and he sort of unpacks this in the book, but it's just worth surfacing for a minute, is that we know, based on uh, Vindeman's uh, uh, testimony, based on Kant, and uh, based on Sondland, that the only thing that Trump and Giuliani wanted was a CNN announcement of this investigation. They did not want an actual investigation for the reasons that, that uh, Neil puts forth, but I think it's patently clear on that point alone, this was not about getting an investigation, it was about a CNN uh, uh, announcement of such. I want to ask you, Neil, because um, I have toggled back and forth in my own thinking about this over the summer between the sort of broad and narrow impeachment, and I know in the book you hive off Ukraine and, and make the argument that, you know, I'm just not going to relitigate the Mueller report, Russia interference, even the obstruction that Mueller found, you know, 10, 10 counts of obstruction that he couldn't charge, but that nevertheless, I think, amount to obstruction. Can you help me think through the virtues? And, and with, with, again, the note that there are a lot of people out there who are very angry that the racism is not among the articles of impeachment, that the emoluments violations and self-dealing are not among the articles. We got a pitch today at Slate saying this, this uh, drone strike should be among the articles of impeachment. So I want you to help me think out why go as narrow as Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff chose to go when in some ways you're leaving a lot on the table. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I am a fan of what Pelosi ultimately did um, by going narrow. And I think the reason for it is, um, is, is really just kind of almost a litigation strategy view that, I, that Ukraine can be broken apart. It is a self-contained, simple set of allegations. The president cheated to try and help win the 2020 election and then obstructed the investigation into it, period. That's it. Now, does he have a pattern of conduct of doing this kind of stuff? Absolutely, going back to what I was talking about, the Trump Tower 2016 and the like. But the difference is, with 2016, he was a private citizen. He was a presidential candidate. And look, I kind of expect more from my presidential candidates, but I guess not everyone agrees with me about that. So, what, but it's very different when you are the nation's chief official, the, new, the numero uno, and you're going and doing this stuff and trying to cheat on an election. And so it's a simple, clean story. And therefore, I, I like the idea of just having it be that. And particularly because in this the polarization you were talking about, Dolly, earlier, the spin cycle and the like, if it gets wrapped up in other stuff, it's going to be like, oh, well, that's what Mueller was investigating for 22 months. Here we go again. We'll never get out of it. So that's why I think it made sense strategically to do that. On the other hand, it's not as if the book is closed on this other stuff. And, and you actually know more about this than I, so maybe you should talk about the court proceedings that happened today um, with Don McGahn. But the House 
judiciary, the House Judiciary Committee is going in to the courts and saying, look, we actually need the unredacted information from the Mueller report because we think there might be the possibility of other impeachable offenses. So they haven't ruled out bringing other stuff. They've just broken apart this. I don't know if you wanted to talk about No, I, I would just add to that. I mean, there were two uh, singularly fascinating hearings today happening at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, one dealing with the unredacted grand jury materials, one dealing with this question of whether Don McGahn, Charles Kupperman, and presumably down the line, uh, John Bolton can be uh, uh, forced to testify. Uh, and in both of them, you know, really arresting claims of executive privilege, the way Neil is describing. And again, this sort of very, very complicated Kafka-esque reasoning that more or less says some of the um, judges and certainly the Trump defenders making arguments like, no, the only place to do this is through impeachment. Wait, but you won't let us do it through impeachment. Right, because the only way to do it is through the courts. But you won't let us do it through the courts. Right, because the only way to do it, and the, you know, you would be forgiven if your head blew off uh, because this is not generally sterling uh, litigation tactics. Uh, but th I think the other, it does lead to um, the question I wanted to ask you as a sort of lifelong litigator and court watcher, at the end of the day, Neil, this is a collision course between the slow, slow workings of the justice system and the court system. You know, we can sort of stop for a moment and remember that Judge Sirica fast-tracked Watergate uh, uh, litigation precisely because sort of sitting around as the grass grows on the presidency uh, doesn't seem like a really smart move, but we are watching, and, and I, you know, I always tell the story, the Supreme Court, you know this better than me, but the Supreme Court has turtles built into the architecture. They take pride in being turtleish, uh, but that's not super, super helpful when you are literally in a race against time. And so I wanted to sort of flip back to you this question of, given that the courts are the only route to get a lot of this information, and you know, to their credit, I think the DC Circuit and the Second Circuit are trying to act with some s speed, but outrunning something that is just, you know, the, the running out the clock seems like it's a very, very smart tactic uh, from Donald Trump's lawyers. And, and what do we do? Do we just sit around and say, boy, I wish that had gone faster? Yeah. So uh, an excellent question. So look, I think there are different buckets of things that, uh, that the Trump administration is refusing to turn over. Witnesses and documents about Ukraine, Bolton, Kupperman, that kind of stuff. That's one. Uh, there is, um, you know, all of his tax returns and all that financial information. That's a whole nother one. Then there's Mueller and the Mueller, unredacted Mueller report and all of that. And then there's witnesses around Mueller like Don McGahn, the White House counsel, who clearly knows that there was some illegal stuff going on. So they were, there are different cases on all of those. And it is so striking to me that the courts have moved as slow as they have already. Um, you know, in Nixon, as you were saying with Judge Sirica, I think that there was a motion to get the Nixon tapes case subpoenaed on April 1st or so, uh, a decision by that dis trial court within a couple of weeks. It went straight to the Supreme Court. They heard oral argument on July 8th. They resolved it, I think, on July 22nd or 23rd. Uh, unanimous decision ruling against uh, the president. So it moves start to finish in just three months. Um, and here we're way past the three-month mark already, and it's really striking to me because of exactly, you know, Dahlia's first question to me was, hey, there's this 2020 election. Why don't we just wait for it? Well, it, you know, given that the election is coming so quickly, it does seem to me the case for speed is even higher than it was in Nixon. And so I've been kind of struck by how slow the courts have been. Like the, uh, the financial records cases, the tax returns and all that is gonna be heard by the Supreme Court in March. Um, you know, they agreed to hear it last month. I don't understand why that couldn't have been resolved in a matter of a few weeks. I mean, the president's arguments in that case are literally written by on crayon. I mean, they're like, they are so bad. This takes no time to resolve this case. Um, and I don't think that there's a, that the president has a, a prayer of winning that case in the Supreme Court of the United States. And I know that some people say, oh, well, there's a bunch of Republican appointees on the Supreme Court and the like, but I don't think that's how they're going 
going to resolve these issues. I think Nixon thought that too. Um, and I suspect Trump does. He keeps on referring to his judges versus Obama's judges and stuff like that. But, you know, in Nixon, you know, four of those justices were appointed by uh, Nixon himself. One recused, Rehnquist. All eight of the others voted against the president. A unanimous decision. I don't think the president has much of a better shot here. Um, so, so I want to take questions in three minutes. So I wondered if, in, having just uh, deplored slowness and turtleishness, I can ask you some speed round questions. Um, just since the book came out, there's been a couple of new developments. One is uh, a sort of interesting internecine warfare uh, between constitutional academics positing that there has been no impeachment unless there's a Senate trial. Um, I think uh, Noah Feldman initially made that, and that sort of rattled around for a couple of days. Is it true in your view that if there's no trial in the Senate, he was not impeached? I mean, that kind of stuff only happens in Cambridge, that someone would come up with something like this. I mean, <laughs> seriously, ridiculous. I okay. mean, the House thought they were impeaching. They voted to impeach the president. President Trump thought he was impeached. He said, I've been impeached. I mean, you know, the fact some guy at Harvard thinks otherwise is, well, whatever. Okay, all right. Uh, speedily done. Um, what about the impasse that we're currently in where Nancy Pelosi is now <laughs> saying, I'm just going to hold my breath and not hand over these articles. And uh, when Mitch McConnell gives me a, a fair trial and witnesses, I will turn them over. How does this resolve? Yeah, so this theory had been kicking around for a while that she wasn't going to send the articles up to the Senate for a trial. And I thought, you know, of course she will and so on. And it would make sense to send them up right away. And then Mitch McConnell did something that took my breath away. He said, I am going to sit and be in full lockstep with the White House in this impeachment trial. I don't understand how this guy is still in office after saying something like that. Um, but if he's going to say it, then I think Pelosi is absolutely right to say, well, your constitutional duty is to have a trial, which means a real trial. I've never heard of a trial without witnesses. I've been a lawyer for a long time. Um, but, and, and, you know, but, you know, so she's holding them back for that reason. And you might ask, like, what's going on there? I think what's going on there is that she's really acutely in the president's head. She knows what he needs. And he needs an acquittal psychologically. It's why, you know, it's not as if, you know, his keyboard is broken. He's on caps lock ever since the House vote. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, so, um, and so, you know, because that's what he needs, she's, I think, very smart and wise in saying, look, I just want a real trial. I'll give you the articles as soon as you can. And like people like Josh Hawley, who is like a, was a respected lawyer, um, you know, for, for a while, you know, he, uh, he said, well, you know, this isn't a real, the, the Democrats are afraid to have a trial. That's why they're, that's why they're not sending the articles up. Of course not. The Democrats just impeached the president with 17 witnesses, including 12 from the, I don't remember how many, but a large number from the Trump administration itself, basically saying that he'd committed an impeachable offense. They're not afraid. They just want to have a real trial. That's all it's about. So um, we're going to take audience questions. I think they're floating microphones. And here we go. So how is there a fair trial? What are the steps that create a fair trial over here? And how, with what? McConnell has said, how do we have a fair trial? What happens? Well, I do think witnesses are kind of important to every trial I've ever heard of. Um, in the Andrew Johnson trial, there were 41 witnesses um, at that Senate trial, um, 25 for one side and 16 for the other, something like that. Uh, in the Clinton trial, there were three witnesses. Um, that was after, of course, a long investigation by Ken Starr and depositions and the grand jury testimony that you know all of us have seen and the like. All of that was was played out. With this one, the president said during the House proceedings, he said. I'm not going to turn over any witnesses to the House. I'd love to have Bolton and Sondland and others testify, but they should testify in the Senate because there it's fair, and in the House it's rigged. Okay, we're in the Senate. You said it. 
But, you know, nobody's memories remember that. But yes, that's exactly, you know, so I think a fair trial is we could start with what the president himself has offered up, which was to have those witnesses testify. We could start by having the documents that they've hidden from the American people about the Ukraine um, turned over. Um, you know, the president has said, this goes back to Dahlia's earlier question, you know, when she said, make the case. The president has said, I was acting in the nation's interests, not my personal ones. If that's so, the documents should easily prove that. I mean, this is Ukrainian aid that was appropriated by our Congress to fight the Russians, and it's our dollars, it's our taxpayer dollars. And he took our taxpayer dollars and said, uh-uh, I'm stopping it. And now he claims he was doing it because you and I benefit from that. We should be able to know that. We should be able to see what that case was, what responsible government officials said that. I know Rudy Giuliani said it after the fact, but I don't think that counts. Okay, where, where, where's our microphone person? Can we, yep. So uh, you started off saying that, you know, you believe in sort of looking at both sides. Um, if you were approached tomorrow uh, to defend President Trump, how would you do that? Well, look, I mean, you, um, you, you heard I've won some awards. I think I'm a pretty good lawyer. I couldn't defend him, really. I honestly don't think that there's, I would urge him to resign. Um, and uh, I think the presidency is much bigger than any one person. And I think that's true about all of our, you know, senior leadership positions in government. It's never about you. The moment it's about you, you have to leave. Um, and I felt that very strongly in the Obama administration, too. Um, and uh, here, this presidency is about him. It's not about us. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't see an actual legal defense. I see smoke and mirrors and look at Biden and both sidesism and this and that. But actually, on the facts of this, there is not, to me, I see no defense. He's certainly not revealed a single document that or witness that chose a defense, except for, as we said, Rudy Giuliani. So, um, so, so I, I, I guess I, I, I urge him to resign. Shouldn't uh, Mitch McConnell be guilty of obstruction of justice, and what would be the process? Well, I think you know to be guilty of obstruction of justice, you know, you'd have to be. Uh, you know, you have to have intent to obstruct justice, and maybe he's got it, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. That's a very complicated case. And I look, I, I am. I really hate the idea that we've over-legalized so many different things in this country. Um, I do think it's a serious problem, both you know, in government as well as in the private sector. But I do want to say the Trump thing is different than all these other things that you hear about because this involves, you know, really that sacred official, our chief officer of the United States, and he's doing something that is at the core of what he's not supposed to do, cheat in his re-election. Um, Pelosi and Schumer thought that they could get this through the Senate, and we're finding out that that's maybe not the case. Um, why are they optimistic? Well, I think we're, they're optimistic for the reason, I don't know if they are, but I am, because I think that when you go to Washington, and I know this is quaint, and, you know, and, and a lot of people disagree with it, but I do think you go to Washington in general because you do believe in a conception of the public good. And you, know, you could have made a lot more money somewhere else, but you came to Washington. Um, and I think that's true of Republicans and Democrats alike. And I've been very saddened by the tribalism over the last few years. Um, but it's also the case that Democrats haven't called the Republicans on this. They didn't go and impeach for Mueller. They never put the question to every senator, uh, the Cory Gardners of the world and the Susan Collins and the Lisa Murkowskis and the Mitt Romneys and say, is this really what you stand for? Because if they do stand for this, if they just let this happen, it's the end of the Republican Party. It literally stands for nothing. And I have to think that the Republican Party, with this great old tradition, is going to come back to its senses. And so that's why I'm optimistic, even though I know Trump wants us all to not be. Trump wants us all to be like, this fix is in. It's done. But two things. One, his behavior constantly is the behavior of a guilty man. And I think that will start to seep in to... Um, 
the uh, to the to the consciousness uh, of folks, and I don't remember the uh, the other right now, but I'll come back to it. I, I, I would add, if I could, just one little gloss on what Neil says, because I think the last words in his book make this point, and I think it's very, very easy to treat this as a spectator sport and to think that it's happening out there or up there or on the news or in D.C. And I think the point at which I think Neil finds and affords real hope in this book is that it's actually up to us. It's not up to uh, Pelosi. It's not up to Mitch McConnell. We, we still uh, do do have a voice and a vote in this country. And I think if you can sort of pierce the fog of war and all of the partisanship and the misinformation, I think it's really, really essential in the coming year to think very, very deeply about the fact that it is still government by and for the people, even if it is sort of run through a machinery that looks very, very broken. And we make the choice at the end of the day, not anybody in D.C., what, if anything, can be done about someone like Lindsey Graham, who has said, I'm not going to be a fair juror? And if he is censured in some way, does that give a message to other Republicans? You know, it is interesting. The, the, the rules for Senate impeachment go back to Andrew Johnson. They're the same rules that applied for President Clinton, for Richard Nixon, uh, were there to be a trial in Nixon and the like. And they do require every senator to take a special oath to do impartial justice. And it is really striking when you compare what Graham said, what McConnell said, against that oath. Um, is there a remedy? Well, some people have proposed like going to the chief justice and seeking them to be stricken um, from the jury pool, essentially. I think that's unlikely. Um, I think the chief justice is gonna approach this. I mean, I've had the privilege of arguing 40 cases before him, and you know, every single time, I'll disagree with him lots, but every single time, I do think he's really legitimately trying to do the right thing and has a deep sense of fairness. At the same time, he did clerk for Chief Justice Rehnquist, who presided over our last impeachment trial over President Clinton. And I think Rehnquist's view, and Rehnquist had even written a book about Chief Justices presiding over impeachment proceedings, Rehnquist's view was to do very little. In fact, he, at the end of it, said, I did very little and I did it well. Um, and I think that will be the Chief's initial inclination. But if the Republicans continue with this real lawlessness and prejudgment, I do not at all think it is um, uh, uh, that the, 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 I do think it's possible that we will see the Chief Justice react in pretty strong ways to that. So, you know, I'm optimistic. Uh, maybe this is the second thing I wanted to say um, in response about the Senate trial um, that I didn't before, but it is the Chief Justice. I am optimistic. I have faith in this Chief Justice, and I think he will, um, he, he's a believer in law and rules. And I think that if they are going to continue those shenanigans, I think there will be, uh, I think we, we should expect some pushback. Thank you for your clarity and for your upfrontness. Um, in United States versus Nixon, 1974, neither separation of powers nor the need for confidentiality can sustain unqualified presidential immunity from the judicial process. So how did DOJ get around it? And Sam Irving threatened to put people in jail when they weren't abiding by the subpoena. Why aren't the Dems playing hardball? And if they don't go to jail and they want to prove, you know, say the fifth, plead the fifth, that's on them. Yeah, so that's a great question. Let me unpack it a little bit. So Nixon said, we talked about this briefly, Nixon said, I'm not going to turn over those witnesses uh, to the impeachment inquiry. That then led... Uh, the Democrats to say, okay, we're going to start jailing witnesses. And then Nixon backs down. Uh, and then there was the Nixon tapes case, which the questioner was reading from, which unanimously said that the president doesn't have an absolute privilege. So how is it that their Justice Department, literally today, the U.S. Justice Department went in today and said, oh, we don't have to turn over this information? Well, because they said that case was wrong. That's their view. This unanimous case that the Nixon decision is wrong and it should be reconsidered. 
I'm sorry. I mean, these people are so wackadoodle, and um, uh, that they are willing. Again, it's about them. It's never about the constitutional principle. I mean, what principle is more in, important to all of us in this room than the idea that when the president is accused of committing wrongdoing, that at least the investigators should be able to get information about that? That's central to everything our democracy is about. It is the compromise in Philadelphia in 1787. Strong president, strong check on the president. And they want to undo that. That's why it's not about, it's not about some principle for them. It's just about protecting their guy. And just a, uh, one more, because uh, Neil asked about oral argument today at the D.C. Circuit. There was quite literally discussion of like Yosemite Sam style shootouts, like boo boo uh, where you know we would like drag people to the tiny jail and we'd like go with guns and try to force people uh, uh, to uh, comply with court orders. Like this is, you know, it's a cartoonish. Uh, argument that devolves into cartoonish analysis. And quite honestly, the idea that anybody sitting in a courtroom is saying, like, maybe just guns are the answer. Um, okay, you know, power to Justice Scalia. He got what he wanted. But it's crazy. It's crazy that this is the way we're doing doctrine now. I think we have time for one more question. There's a microphone there. With respect to the administration's trashing of almost every institution, particularly the judiciary. Uh, what's your sense of the current administration's Justice Department and Bill Barr's role uh, up until now and during the impeachment process? Can we add 10 minutes to the clock? <laughs> it, it's not good. I mean, this, this Justice Department has done stuff that I find unforgivable. I mean, just to take one example, the way Barr spun the Mueller report. He didn't allow us to see it. I was actually here in, in Aspen, and, and I got this four-page summary, and it said the president had done nothing wrong, you know, according to Mueller. Well, it turns out when you read the report, it said, well, the president did 10 things that were all indictable felonies, but he couldn't do it because the president has a get-out-of-jail-free card that a sitting president can't be indicted. That's nowhere in the bar summary of the report. I mean, I'm sorry if like my third grader summarized the report in this way, or a law student or a law professor, they would like lose tenure. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, so, and it's not just at the top. It is, you know, switching, you know, when I was in the Justice Department, I reviewed every, I came in on January 20th, 2009, I reviewed every Bush administration litigation position. We flipped, we changed our position in zero cases initially, and ultimately became one case um, while I was there in those two years. That is, we believed that the Justice Department has an important role in being credible, taking positions, not changing them willy-nilly one administration to the next. That's true of every predecessor solicitor general. They flip in maybe two, three cases, something like that. I think this administration's flipped more than 40 times already. 40 times. And on big things like, you know, health care. Like going in and arguing the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. The law passed by Congress when the job of the Solicitor General is to defend acts of Congress from a constitutional attack. Going and saying like bathrooms, like for transgender, you know, just to humiliate kids who don't know where to go to the bathroom, flipping positions on that. I mean, these people are, um, you know, this is not impeachment. None of this is impeachable in my view, but it is deeply wrong and deeply immoral. So I want to, I want to take a moment to, first of all, thank the Aspen Institute. I want to thank uh, the folks who are listening in, either on the Amicus feed or the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. I want to take a moment to thank Neil. We, we're sitting here being a little flip and a little clever, uh, in part because this is just really the hardest, most intractable, and I think gravest constitutional moment that either of us has ever faced in our careers. So please don't take uh, some of the, the cracking wise to mean that this isn't urgently, profoundly existential important and please 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 do what you can to amplify the 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 ideas that you've heard today but also just to remember uh, as Neil says at the end of the book it's really really dark but you can finally see the stars one of them is on the stage here tonight in front of you thank you very much
Neil Katyal wrote the book Impeach, the Case Against President Trump. He's a law professor at Georgetown and a partner at Hogan Levels. Dahlia Lithwick writes about law and politics for Slate. Her work has appeared in the New York Times and the New Yorker. She hosts the podcast Amicus. Their conversation was held January 3rd, 2020 in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Community Programs team is Crystal Logan, Zoe Brown, Jillian Scott, and Katie Carlson. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.